Integrated Schools podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from L.A. Episode 13, Hopes and Hazards of Dual Language. Today we're talking with Dr. Sophia Shaparo. She's uh, an assistant professor of educational linguistics at the University of Colorado at Denver. And her research is focused on Spanish dual immersion programs, particularly in gentrifying neighborhoods. Yeah, and that kind of covers a lot of us in the um, in the integrated schools community, huh? <laughs> yes, that definitely covers me. <laughs> yeah, me too. And honestly, I really struggle with dual language in this context. In a way, integrated schools really started because of dual language. My uh, missteps with dual language, right? When my kids were in elementary school, we made a huge number of mistakes in our program. And my son was in the pilot year and, you know, and me in particular did a lot of things wrong. So this episode with Dr. Shapato was really difficult for me to have. Anyway, what became clear to me when my kids were younger was that when we're talking about dual language, we're often not talking about integration. And when we're not talking about integration, when we're not being intentional and reflective, we're not really even coming close to doing integration. It might be desegregation, but it probably won't be integration. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the possibilities that these dual immersion programs offer are are huge, right? Mm-hmm. But but they're often exploited by <laughs> by white and privileged people, well intentioned or not. That's right. You know, I, mean, I think in many ways it's the same story as any other school environment, but it's it's sort of more in your face because the kids are actually you know sharing a classroom. That was the thing sort of throughout this conversation that that I was continually reminded of is that the promise of these programs is the same as the promise in many ways of integrated schools in general. And the potential pitfalls, the ways that whiteness and privilege can be problematic in these spaces are very similar to the ways that privilege can wreak havoc in any school community. Yeah. And I think just to be clear, we should say that this episode is really focused on Spanish English programs. And while many of the lessons are probably generalizable to other programs like Korean, Mandarin or whatever, Dr. Shaparo's research and our personal experience is in Spanish and English programs. And in the U.S., those are the programs that are the most popular and growing, right? We're intentionally kind of staying out of the weeds on some of the specific kinds of programs that exist out there, one-way or two-way immersion versus bilingual ed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and at least, you know, for this episode, at least, we're not going to try to get into sort of the, like, language hierarchies that can exist. Yeah. Mandarin is sexier than Spanish is sexier than whatever, you know. We're, these things exist, we recognize it, but we think there's sort of some generalizable things here that diving into the Spanish immersion programs um, conceptually can really sort of illuminate. Yeah. So we are grateful to Dr. Shapiro for sharing her expertise with us. So let's just head to that conversation. Indeed. Do you want to describe a little bit about the research that you did that got you to thinking about this? Sure, definitely. My sort of foray into the field and these questions came both as a teacher and now as a researcher. I started off as a teacher in Boston Public Schools, and my first year as a teacher, I I really wanted to be in a bilingual school. I've always had a passion for bilingualism. I grew up bilingual on the U.S.-Mexico border, and as a teacher, I knew I wanted to be in a bilingual space. And so I was hired to be the Spanish side of a dual-language school in the south end of Boston. And when I started, I had the first cohort of students that included white students. 
in this public school that hadn't had white students in a really long time. And so as a teacher, I grappled with a lot of questions about equity in my classroom and both the challenges and the possibilities of these kinds of programs. And, you know, I had a wonderful classroom full of, you know, second graders eager to learn. And I had children from very privileged backgrounds who walked to school from these beautiful homes that were quite expensive, that had parents that were college educated and beyond, that had a lot of means and resources. And then I had children who also walked to school, but they came from the projects not too far away, who were mostly Latinos, tended to be from working class backgrounds. And and so I saw a lot of some of the inequities, but then I saw how beautiful it was that they were learning together, right? In my classroom, one of the most beautiful moments that I remember is I had this one boy, Luis. He was just a kid who was so bright and smart beyond his age in a street smart sort of way, but didn't necessarily like coming to school and was a bit rebellious. And sometimes I had a lot of trouble with him and his behavior and whatnot. And then I had a little boy whose name was Price and he was white and came from uh, an affluent home and and kind of soft-spoken and quiet. And, And so I think at one point I was working with Luis at the table and Price came up to me and asked me, like, how do you say this in Spanish? And, you know, Luis answered right away and Price went back to his table satisfied with the answer. And I was like, this is beautiful, right? Like, when does a little boy like Price get to learn from a little boy like Luis, right? And Mm. his, his word is taken and his knowledge is validated and legitimized, right? There were moments like that that I felt like there was so much possibility in this program, but there were other moments that made me pause and made me wonder, like, what are we doing here, right? Like when all of my white kids got placed in advanced placement and Mm. one or two of my Latino kids. And so, you know, things that also didn't feel right. And that as a, as teachers, we talked about, but not in a formal way, not as a school. We didn't really address what was happening in our school and all the changes that were occurring and how we how we dealt with it, right? And my, my students' parents had very different needs and demands and ways of, you know, interacting with me that pulled me in different directions. And so as a teacher, it was always kind of stressful. And those questions are what drove me to grad school. And so when I started grad school at the University of Pennsylvania, I eventually got connected to a school that wanted to open a dual language program. And so I became involved from the beginning and I you know, was part of the group that was sort of supporting the principal and thinking about how to start the program. And I I started doing research into how the program got started. And I followed a, a group of about 10 to 12 students from kindergarten to first grade to think about their experiences in the program. My group of focus kids was a very diverse group in terms of, you know, race and class and socioeconomic background and educational background of parents. But yeah. So the kinds of questions that I had as a teacher, I was able to explore as a researcher for my dissertation, you know, what is the impact of class and race um, and language into the experiences of children, into their language development, into the experiences of parents, um, and, you know, and how and why do these programs get started in the first place? Um, So those were some of the questions I explored overall in my dissertation. Can you give us a little bit of sort of the brief overview of both like what dual language or what immersion is and why did it start? What was the sort of original intent behind it? There's several terms that get thrown around that might mean slightly different things, but dual language education refers to schooling that takes place in two languages. Usually in the the United States, the most common type of dual language program are Spanish and English programs. And then there's various models and various types. 
you know, bilingual education has existed since the 70s, right, as part of the fight for civil rights from Latino and Chicano communities who wanted to fight for education in their own language, right, as part of the 70s movement to obtain equal rights. Yeah. And so, you know, like you mentioned that the dual language programs are kind of expanding now, like they're Mm -hmm. growing across the country. Really, the the interest, I think, is growing in part because our cities are changing. Right. And so Mm -hmm. in my research, I looked at a lot just how it seemed to me part of the reason why these programs are even possible is that you get in the same space people from very diverse backgrounds. And that has been occurring because of gentrification, right? Or this desire to live in the city. The change in city demographics and with young families that might choose to stay in the city, I think along with that, there's also for some people, right? It's not just a demographic shift, but I want to argue in my work that it's also sort of like an ideological shift, right? There's often families that tend to have uh, liberal or progressive values, right? That value diversity that might want certain experiences for their children. Mm -hmm. And so two-way immersion programs become really attractive because, well, first of all, you know, it's it's the opportunity to be bilingual, right? And many parents that I talk to who themselves aren't bilingual really appreciate this opportunity for their children. And, you know, just understanding how our world is changing and being bilingual is a good skill to have. And many parents recognize that. So it becomes sort of this attractive option, you know, and it's also for a lot of people, also the ability to be in a more diverse environment, right? Dual is kind of the way to feel like you're not giving up too much. Your kid will still be challenged and they get this cool extra thing and you're supporting public education. Win, 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 win. And there's equity built into it, right? Like it seems from the outside that this is really a mechanism for kumbaya. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's like, there's great potential in it, right? I mean, I think like, like the story you told at the beginning is like mm-hmm. the, the opportunities are so great to actually increase equity and to have more integration and to, to both sort of attract a more diverse student population and to then serve them equitably. But I feel like it, it's not always kumbaya. <laughs> so I'm wondering, wonder if you can talk a little bit about sort of the ways that we actually see it showing up and the sort of the, the, not, the not kumbaya piece of it. So I think one of the pitfalls that has been written about is sort of, and this is in places like Philadelphia where you have a really underfunded public school system that seems to be like constantly in crisis, right? What started happening, and, and Maya Kuchi wrote a book about this called Marketing Cities and Marketing Schools, is that suddenly with the city gentrifying and not only like city population changing, but perhaps public school population changing, that white middle-class parents became more desirable as parents in a school. And so what became a little bit problematic is schools using that as kind of a reform strategy Mm -hmm. because parent groups that have resources, that have you know, the ability to navigate certain systems, the ability to fundraise are going to help out a school a lot. In particular in Philadelphia, what was happening is that part of the reform strategy of the district began to be closing schools, which was super controversial, right? Because they were closing schools in communities that were poor and communities of color. And so school leaders were really constantly nervous about their schools being closed. So one way to avoid closure is to make sure enrollment is up. So that can be a little bit problematic. Um, 
in some ways. Yeah, just know, a little bit, like when you're starting a whole program <laughs> based on how many white people can we get? That's not necessarily like the intention, but what happens is that because there's limited resources and limited mm-hmm. human resources, right, in terms of energy, you know, the energy became a little bit more focused on having school tours. And so in my research, what started to happen was, and again, I, I want to emphasize that a lot of parents were very equity minded. So a lot of parents were doing this because a desire to support public education, a belief that everybody deserves a good school. A lot of parents were cognizant that they needed to support the whole school and not just the program because, especially because Maya Cuchiara's work was specifically about Philadelphia and it had been out for a year or two, parents understood that things can be problematic, right? And so there was this understanding that we don't want just a good school for our kids. We want to have a good school, period. Right. So there was one community group that had an education committee where many of like new residents, right, gentrifying residents, if you will, or many of white middle class parents that sort of that became kind of like a de facto parent organization. And a lot of their efforts to support the school, some of them were major like fundraising efforts, right? Like raising like millions of dollars for a playground. But part of the effort too was getting the word out. And some of those efforts sort of rested on a logic of getting a critical mass, which meant a critical mass of people like me, right? So other people that were also middle class or that might have also been white to support the school. And there were a lot of comments like, oh, you know, a couple of years ago, the school wasn't as good as it is now. I mean, the school actually hadn't changed that much. It was just like, different kinds of people were interested in it. And so I think that's when it became a little problematic because the logic of what makes a school good or not didn't always rest on what the actual school was or the teachers, but it was more so like, can I get other people like me in this school? To have a two-way immersion program, you need a certain number of native English-speaking kids. Mm -hmm. And in most places, the way that we fund schools, the more kids you have, the more things you're able to do. Right. So, you know, you you need to attract some more people to the school. Mm -hmm. Where where does it go from being helpful to problematic? Is it a is it a numbers thing? Is it a mentality thing? Is it a that's a really good question. I think a different way to think about it is. Yes, in theory, right? Like there's this idea that successful programs have sort of like similar numbers of children from various language backgrounds. But at the same time, right, there needs to be a recognition that this is a lot more fluid in the sense that for a lot of Latinos in the U.S., there's like various degrees of bilingualism. So a lot of researchers in the field are kind of just like questioning these categories that we naturalize in these programs, number Mm -hmm. one. Right. Mm. So we naturalize categories like, oh, English speaker and Spanish speaker. Whereas really, if you live in the U.S., you're to some degree bilingual. Right. Especially children. So there needs to be a recognition that there's varying degrees of exposure to language. And so we don't have to think so rigidly about certain categories. I know that sometimes, at least in the program I worked with, there was like, you know, oh my God, we don't have equal numbers. You know, what's going to happen? The kids, you know, the kids are going to learn, right? Like, because these programs have been written about in, in particular ways, and we think that this is how it has to be. In reality, every dual language two-way immersion program in some ways is grappling with the messiness of reality 
And there's been no school I worked with that hasn't felt like they were confused or doing something slightly off than like the theoretical models. We have to deal with the messiness of reality and like whether you can get bilingual teachers or not, and whether you're going to have equal quote unquote numbers of different language backgrounds in the children. You know, so, so that's one question. In the community of researchers, we've been looking at problematizing some of these like very rigid language categories because they affect especially like Latino children in different ways. Because in thinking about equity, just the different ways in which language is perceived from people that have Hispanic background, right? Latinos and their language and their languaging, right? The way they use language is always going to be perceived differently than white children, right? Right. Um, Or even black children for that matter. But that's another issue because the ways we look in which we look at the language of black children is also somewhat problematic, right? Mm. Because we have these notions of what counts as standard language, that we feel like we need to have good models of what standard language is, right? And sometimes black children don't fit into what we think are good models, um, which is, again, problematic too. But this idea of language dominance, it can be problematic to assume that Latino children automatically are going to be Spanish dominant. Mm -hmm. And this is not something that necessarily we can help. This is sort of the inequality of the world we live in, is that Latino children are going to be expected to learn English, And also, they might be expected to know Spanish to a certain degree, right? So a lot of Latino children are in this double bind where people look at, you know, when you Mm. mix your languages and you speak Spanglish, right, which most of us do, it's our sociolinguistic reality, right? And so you use both languages fluidly. And that's normal. That's a normal way to speak if you're bilingual. But often, because it doesn't fit into these rigid categories, then it's like, oh, you know, Sophia doesn't know how to speak English. Well, nor even Spanish, you know. And so like the way their language gets looked at and perceived is really different because children that don't have Latino background, that don't have Hispanic background, are not expected to know Spanish at all. And because English is their first language, there's a lot more praise and recognition. Um, Mm. Nobody expects like a white little kid to bust out in Spanish, right? And when they do, they're like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Even if it's terrible Spanish, even if it's not good Spanish, like any at all is such a victory. We should celebrate you. Right, right. And then Latinos, on the other hand, it's like, well, obviously you live in the U.S., right? You have to know English. So there's like no praise there, (laughs) you know, and then when you don't speak Spanish well, then it's like, oh, you don't even speak Spanish well. The ties to language and ethnicity and culture are a lot more complicated and often fraught. And that's one of the sort of underlying inequities in some of these programs and especially immigrant children, right? It's not a choice that they learn English. And for students whose English is their family language and their own language, they're not expected to learn Spanish. Right. So it's sort of like an elective. Right. And for white or privileged parents, it's a way to get something else for your kid. Right. It's like a thing to get your kid that will give them a leg up. I feel right. like that's that's where a lot of these tensions seem to me to be rooted is in the the sort of mindset. We talk a lot about like the importance of how you show up, mm-hmm. that showing up in a way to just get more stuff for yourself, mm-hmm. showing up in a way to get more things for your kid is problematic. And we see it happen in all sorts of ways. And we see it happen in Gifted and Talented. We see it happen in, you know, all these other places and dual language is just sort of another one of those areas that there's the potential for it. And I like how you say that because I think it matters, right? Like how you show up and amongst all the beautiful advantages of being bilingual, right? And again, I'm I'm a huge proponent of bilingualism, right? Like I think this is amazing. It's not that it's a bad thing, but one of the beautiful advantages that goes to me, like beyond sort of 
job or skill or whatnot is just the ability to understand a different worldview. Because hopefully it's not just the opportunity to be bilingual, but the opportunity to understand the histories of speakers of that language. And so the opportunity to learn about cultures and countries and the struggles, right, of Spanish-speaking people in the U.S. And to me, right, that's what might make us a better society, right, when we're, Mm. when we have the capacity to really understand that. And and I think this is where I want to go back to address your question, Andrew, where, so some of the critical components or basic components, if you will, of two-way immersion, the three pillars, if you will, that are talked about in research are, you know, two-way immersion programs integrate students from different language backgrounds for three reasons, for bilingualism, number one, for biliteracy, number two, and cross-cultural integration is number three, which doesn't get talked about as much, right? Because it's number one, how do you measure it? But before even measuring it, how do you define it, right? Mm -hmm. And number four is uh, what some of my colleagues are calling the fourth pillar, which is critical consciousness. So not being neutral to the histories of struggle of Spanish-speaking people. You know, to be able to have a critical consciousness as to what's happening. So if you're in a school that is in a neighborhood that was gentrified, being able to talk about that in the classroom, which is hard, right? It requires teachers to, you know, want to do it. But there are several teachers in Denver who, when they talk about Westport expansion, they'll they'll touch upon gentrification, right? Not every school or teacher is going to be willing to address those difficult topics in the classroom. But I think if we want to sort of get closer to what we want in terms of the kumbayanes <laughs> or the, the, you know, the, the possibilities really of these spaces, I think we need to be willing to deal with these difficult topics and how to address them with our kids, because it's not like they don't see it. Right. You know, yeah. Kids, you know, they live through inequality. They understand to some level and to some degree. And so we need to be able to talk about it, too, in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the promise of more integrated education in general. I mean, I yeah. feel like that should be maybe not even the fourth pillar and it should not be just just relegated to immersion programs. Right. Like right. The, yeah. the beauty of a school environment where you can actually, if you're committed to it, create these sort of equal power relationships where kids can find their shared humanity mm-hmm. and you can have the opportunity to address these topics, like you say, to talk about them, to say them out loud because the kids know they're going on anyway. Mm-hmm. But to be able to talk about them in a way that is, a, is about relationships, that's not intellectual mm-hmm. or not solely intellectual, that is about, look at you right. two. You see how you guys are friends? Let's think about this in terms of what, how does society treat the two of you different? And do you think that that's right? Why do you, you know, why do you think that is? And, and how do you feel about it? Because that's a much different learning experience than than you know reading a book about Rosa Parks or Cesar Chavez right right, or Cesar Chavez right right, being being taught about it in an intellectual fashion and I think that's that's where that why there's so much potential in it just seems like like dual language has the ability to do all of those things in such a more I don't want to say it's easier but it, it the potential for it is all right there because you have the power of the language to undermine some of the ways that society at large is talking about or thinking about who gets valued in which in what ways. Right. I think, Andrew, part of what makes me so upset <laughs> is these mechanisms that you're talking about are there and we can still step all over them. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? Like there's so much promise. And yet, even with all of that in your faceness about mm-hmm. it, 
in so many ways, these are still really, really inequitable spaces. Mm-hmm. And the white kids are still winning. And these schools tend to vibe white middle classness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that's also like a huge tragedy. And I know in a lot of places in my community in particular, there are a lot of Latinx families and individuals who say like, there the white kids go. Now they're taking even more of our stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're taking our homes and driving up home prices in this gentrifying community. Now they're also getting our language. What aren't they right. getting? And what are we getting in exchange? Mm-hmm. It's like on the backs of the brown kids do the white children rise. The great thing about our conversation now and your organization is that, you know, the focus is on integration and and with the premise that, like, this is what these spaces are doing. But for a long time, dual language pro or two way immersion programs have been talked about only about the language. Right. We only talk about the bilingualism and the English speakers and the Spanish speakers. And we don't talk about all the differences that those labels are obfuscating, that those labels are hiding a lot of other differences. When you just ignore (laughs) all the other things and when we pretend it's just about language, then you can ignore all the differences in resources and, you know, the voice that parents have and, you know, in race and in opportunities. And, and, and so you get to be in this like kumbaya space because it's just about the language. And like the the very cute little like Dia de los Muertos fun traditions and, you, you know, yeah. Yeah. For example, in the school I worked with, it's like, whose role is it to bring the families together or to think about this? Right. Because, you know, the teachers are so overburdened and the principal has it's overburdened with just surviving right as a school that this goal of cross-cultural understanding or integration or whatnot, it's hard to put that on top of everything else. It takes very skilled individuals to be able to navigate these multiple worlds. Not only is it hard enough to find bilingual teachers, but then to find people that are going to be able to navigate all these differences. (laughs) So the teacher I worked with, she's Venezuelan, and she was very, very passionate about the program, but supporting her Latino community, supporting her families, and really seeing like, you know, like me, like when I was a teacher, right? Like you see the promise and you get excited over it. And, you know, she got along great with all her parents. She got along great with her Latino parents. She got along great with her white parents. And it burned her out because, you know, you had several of the white parents who really wanted a potluck. And so she's like, okay, well, on top of everything I'll have to do, I'll organize a potluck, you know, to start building this community. And so it was like all this extra work and she organized a potluck in November and, and it went really well. And, and it was like slightly awkward, like all the dual language family engagements are where you have like all the English speakers on one side and all the Spanish speakers on the other side. And you had maybe like one bilingual parent, you know, that was like the hope of all the other parents who could be like the bridge, right? You know, and and then like in the spring, I was like, oh, let's do another family get together. And like, there was a lot of pressure from some, uh, you know, in particular, one or two of the white moms to like really do these extracurricular, let's get us all together activities. You know, but because my teacher, she was so you know, she believed in it and she wanted to do it, but it was like really like on top of all the other things she was having to do, it was stressful. 
And as the teacher, you know, she understood the realities of her Latino parents who were mostly immigrants and had very, very different needs than what her white parents wanted, what her middle class parents wanted. And it becomes really stressful to try to deal with both. And I saw myself in her. You know, it's a frustrating place to be that you see you know, some of the needs and the realities of your migrant parents, you know, many of them might not speak English. Many of them may or may not have papers. Many of them survived crazy struggles to be where they are. Many of them need support in translating forms. And, and, and yet they showed up all the time, like every field trip. Oh my God. She had all her Latina moms ready with all their sandwiches packed, like (laughs) ready to participate. And it was great, you know? And then she also had parents who emailed her every night about something that went wrong during recess, or can I get the high frequency words in Spanish so my kid can practice? And when are we going to have a potluck? And, you know, and it just became such a contrast of where do I put my energies in? You know, I'm being pulled in one way where I really want to serve the other way. And she understood that some of the requests that came from some of her whiter middle-class parents were well-intentioned and were maybe often in an effort to support the school, but it was sort of like tone deaf as to like what else was happening, right? Or, or in comparison to like what priorities. Some of my research too had to do with simply looking at the different realities of the families. And as a school, to be able to really serve all your students, right? And, and it's hard when you're pulled in such different directions. And, and in the context of gentrification, it sort of becomes frustrating that you know that because some of these parents have the time and the resources and the language and the ability to come and demand certain things that they might get that more than some of your parents who don't have the language, who don't know how to navigate systems, who sort of like are in survival mode or who are doing what they can to support their kids. Can you give some examples of those? Yeah, definitely. This is the specific case of one mom who was particularly anxious about public school in general. Mm. (laughs) You know, that was part of the problem, right? Like many of the things she wanted or that she was concerned about were things that, you know, my teacher was a new teacher in that school as well, right? So I remember the first week of school right away, it was like, oh my God, dismissal was so disorganized. And she wanted like the teacher to have a system in place that was different than you know, it seemed like it was chaotic, you know, so like right away asking the teacher for that. And then also early on in the beginning of the school year, like high frequency words in Spanish so her kid could practice. And then they were having issues with recess time. Also just like problems with the lunch ladies being too mean. I mean, lunch was a mess. Recess was a mess. Like the cafeteria was like loud. And, you know, in general, these were more like systematic challenges of the school. So my teacher in the first couple of months of school also developed like a donors choose page. This particular mom found some of her language problematic and, you know, wanted to address that. And so all of this was within the first four months of school yeah. from one parent. And it was so much that wasn't to this parent's standard, it, you know, and, and my teacher, you know, I, I'll call her Miss O. So I don't call her my teacher. She's a, she, we became really good friends too, but uh, Miss O you know, spent so much time and energy and, and became anxious, right? Like, what am I not doing right? I mean, she was also in her first year of teaching, which is a particularly challenging time. This woman in particular was married to a Hispanic man. And, and like, as a couple, they were great. And like, Miss O went to happy hour with them once and they were great people. But as a mom, she had a lot of anxieties over what was wrong in this school. And just, just herself required so much time and attention from Miss O, 
right? It's draining because she was dealing with one parent. Right. This meant like emails and phone calls sometimes. And on top of that, this woman's son wasn't doing so well in the classroom behaviorally. As a mom, of course, you have every right to want to address, but it was it was just a lot, you know, and, and in the end, her son was going to be okay. We talk about opportunity hoarding and you know, white and privileged yeah. families tend to hoard more resources just in general. But uh, I think we don't often put enough emphasis on the hoarding of time. Mm-hmm. This Jane really felt both entitled to Ms. Ola's time mm-hmm. and emotional support. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that, you know, she was expecting more stuff, but she was expecting more of this human being Mm -hmm. and felt, felt an entitlement to it. If you had said like, Miss O charges $50 an hour, (laughs) you know what I mean? Which seems low. In fact, like who, who's getting more of of those resources and, and why, right. And is that commensurate with some sort of like positive effect in the classroom? Probably not. Right. Or like, is that directed to like where the need is actually greatest? Because you figure like whatever time she spent (laughs) doing that, if she had spent helping some of her other families, like navigate the, you know, forms that needed to be filled out that were only available in English or whatever, in terms of greater good, where the need is greatest, that would have been a much better use of her time. I mean, probably even better use of her time would have been going to the spa or something because she <laughs> first year teaching, she was probably totally worn out anyway. But I feel like, you know, could, she could have done something much more useful with that time. Yeah. And, and also, you know, part of it is to, again, the structural, the ways in which the school wasn't set up to serve some of the families. Like it also shouldn't fall in Miso to help families translate forms. Right. But there was really no other bilingual person in the school. I mean, maybe there was one or two teachers that were white, but were also bilingual. And there was one bilingual counseling assistant, uh, a woman who was there three days a week. Nobody in the front office was bilingual. And, and, And before Ms. O, there were no other Latina teachers who were sort of advocates for Latino families. And so that Ms. O took very seriously, too. She was like, nobody is speaking up for Latino families in this school. If we had a well-supported school system or school where you have bilingual personnel to attend to some of the needs of the bilingual families, that also wouldn't fall on Miss O's shoulders. Those were the dynamics of this particular school. But as you mentioned, Courtney, gentrifying areas you know, that have public schools are also public schools and perhaps dysfunctional systems yeah. where not even bilingual personnel are available. You know, and it's not just bilingual, but like personnel that really are going to advocate for Latino families. And I, I know that even though the principal's sort of heart was in the right place and he said the right things, you know, Miss O often felt like she was the only advocate in the school for, to, you know, for some of her Latino parents. But what if we could think differently, right. About like perceived need, right. What if Jane could think differently about what the needs are in a macroscopic way? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I should say too, that eventually Jane took her son out of the program, like not like midway through Mm -hmm. and another Mm -hmm. mom too, that's similar to Jane was very invested in the school and had spent a lot of time in the school as a pre-parent. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. Have you ever heard that term? No, no. Pre-parent in Philadelphia. What started happening is that, you know, young parents whose children were not yet school aged became interested in certain schools 
and became involved in supporting the school, right. just to start to get familiar with the school and to see if this would be a viable option for their kid once their kid was school aged. So they weren't yet parents, they were pre-parents. <laughs> right. Let me, let me get in there so I can make sure the school is right for my kid by the time I have a kid and they're in the school. Exactly. So this woman, this other woman, um, not Jane, but we can call her Laura. Um, Laura had been a pre-parent, super involved in the school, but again, also her son behaviorally started having challenges. And she also, again, like took a lot of time to address some of these things with Miss O and eventually took her son out because what she wanted in a school experience she wasn't getting. Then there was another white parent, Mary, and Mary also became super involved in the school. I mean, I had a lot of good conversations with her where she realized the fact that I'm white and privileged, I know gets me the attention that other parents who have been speaking for a very long time for Philly schools aren't getting. So I think for parents, being part of these schools and getting involved also becomes a process of, you know, realizing a lot of things like privilege and inequity and race. And and part of why some of these things and spaces are uncomfortable is because it's not like these don't happen, is that it's rare that they happen in the same space and it's uncomfortable to see it play out in the way it does. Mm, Yeah. Right. When we only have low income kids of color in public schools and, you know, white privileged kids in suburban schools, it doesn't bother us that much because it's not, they're not together in the same space. Not that it doesn't bother us, but it's not as painfully obvious. We don't have to deal with it as much. Again, yeah, I mean, I guess it, right. Again, it sort of extends beyond just immersion programs, right? But like, Mm -hmm. it's much easier if you don't have to see it. It's much easier as a white privileged person to imagine that those things aren't happening or to just not think about them happening. My school has needs. And so I'm fundraising for it without recognizing what that, you know, the the bigger impact on the system. We've talked about there's like this great potential in these programs and the circumstances they create and the ways that they can work. And then there's ways that mostly privileged people show up in them that can undermine that. Do you have some like concrete advice for people who are, who are either in it or thinking about getting into mm-hmm. it, bringing privilege with them about ways to think about sort of how to use that in the most effective or helpful way? One thing I was thinking about just sort of this idea of not being naive, like not going into mm-hmm. it without knowing, right? Like doing a little bit of research. The history of bilingualism in this country is long and vast and full of struggles and being willing to learn from other people, you know, who are the Spanish speakers in the school? Where is this Latino community come from? Being open to being put in uncomfortable positions, being okay with that. I think being clear as to the reasons why you're choosing a a school like this, that hopefully go beyond language and knowing that Diversity means difference and difference can be hard to navigate and being open to learning. One mom that I spoke with, she's white, um, but she knew Spanish really well. I think from early on, her, her mom was a Spanish teacher or something like that. So she was really committed to having her children be bilingual and she spoke Spanish fluently to them and her kids spoke Spanish very well, but she noticed that her daughter would only hang out with the other white little girls in the classroom and she wanted to change that. And she realized, well, I'm only hanging out with the other white parents. So maybe if she sees me talk to, you know, some of the Mexican moms, she'll start to hang out with some of the Mexican little girls and boys. And so, I mean, because she's bilingual, she could do that. And so she started to do that. And then she told me, you know, she's like, I realized 
because I'm bilingual, these differences go beyond language. And navigating class differences is often more difficult than navigating language or racial differences, I would argue. And she was starting to realize that, you know, and and it was like trial and error. You know, she was telling me how she realized maybe playdates would be uncomfortable because she realized her home, it looks probably very different than her little girl's new friend. She befriended this little Mexican girl and they started wanting to hang out. And she realized, is this going to be sort of uncomfortable for us as families? Like when her mom comes to pick her up, like maybe as she was like, you know, I realized meeting at the park was a much more neutral way to hang out together without having our differences and means become an issue. Mm. Birthday party, right? Like her daughter only wanted to invite, you know, the English speaking, you know, middle-class kids because that's who she hung out with after school. That's who she saw in like soccer practice or, you know, ballet or whatever. And she was like, how do I address this? And, and she did bring it up with the teacher. And I think the teacher did this read aloud about how we're all different, but we can be friends. And, and then like, I think the mom talked to the little girl and the little girl was like, okay, I want to invite everyone. So then like everyone became invited to the party. But then at the party, she realized, like when you invite one Mexican kid and the parent, it might be that like five other people might show up. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and so then, you know, large Mexican families showed up and, and, you know, so it was just these interesting intercultural moments of dissonance where you realize people approach life differently. There's different ways to look at time. There's different ways to think about what's okay and not okay for children to do and to eat and to watch. And those things are different. And there's going to be moments of difficulty and discomfort, but that, you know, that's never meant to be easy. Yeah, it's um, it's never meant to be easy indeed, but I guess neither is anything worthwhile, right? That's right, like parenting or podcasting. <laughs> As, well, I mean, that's assuming that podcasting is worthwhile. <laughs> I think it is. It feels, it feels worthwhile. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, that really stood out to me in this conversation is the, the ways in which these dual immersion programs fall prey so often to the same things that, that all integrating spaces can fall prey to. Yeah. Like the sense of entitlement to a teacher or administrator's time and the probability of that being tone deaf to the needs of other families at the school. Hashtag my own shame. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think, right. That's like a, that's a great example of, of opportunity hoarding that I think we don't often think of as opportunity hoarding, but right. Teachers, administrators time is valuable. Yeah. So Andrew, like when you're thinking about this conversation, what are the things here that are particular to you about dual immersion programs? Like other than the fact that these are growing like crazy and increasingly sexy for white and our privileged parents to enroll their kids in, what are the dangers or lessons that are specific to those, right? Like, so there's like going to an integrating school, like maybe if you live in a gentrifying neighborhood or diverse neighborhood, then there's going to an integrating school with a, some kind of special program, like magnet or gifted mm-hmm. STEM or whatever. And then there's dual immersion. Like what makes dual unique. I'm thinking about my experience like that when we think of dual immersion as being kind of an equity program, different maybe from like a gifted or STEM program, we sort of think that that integration work is already built in, right? And and maybe we're less inclined to be proactive about equity and integration. Yeah. I mean, I think 
fundamentally, we can never assume that any of our systems are going to do the work for us, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the best design system for equity still requires attention and intentionality. Mm-hmm. But, but I do think there's something different in the, in the potential, at least, of dual language that is, that's different in some ways from a STEM magnet or a gifted program or something. And I, I think it's like, you know, the premise of dual immersion is that kids are different. They bring different gifts to the classroom and that those differences are a benefit to everyone. Right, right. Because like with gifted, the premise is that the kids are all the same, right? Like we want it that way. Right, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a potential anti-tracking maneuver built into dual, <laughs> yeah. right? Like yeah. the, the promise, at least, the, that it's there. We don't always treat it that way. And we the opportunity hoarding still often shows up. But sort of at the fundamental premise of the program, there is some measure of equity built in. And that's, that's where I think there's a lot of promise. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe what I'm struggling with is that I don't know, dual language is not as much of a win for kids who grow up in different linguistic backgrounds as it is for white kids. Yeah. Like the white kids speaking Spanish or Korean or Arabic is amazing. Right. Whereas, you know, for the Latinx kid or Korean kid or Arabic kid, it's like to be expected. And I don't know what we do with that. Maybe we just have to sit with acknowledging it. Yeah. Yeah. I think be cognizant of it, not assume that, you know, because there is equity built into the program that our work is somehow done. You know, I think you, coming back to episode 10, you know, we have to put energy into building relationships. Yeah. And in dual immersion programs and, and not only dual immersion programs, but definitely in dual immersion programs, you know, families hail from all different linguistic backgrounds. And so there are very real language barriers, right, that complicate the already complicated efforts to build relationships. Yeah. You know, it's hard to build relationships when your five Spanish words include like margaritas and gracias, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Hashtag my own shame, right? And it puts all the pressure on bilingual folks. As Dr. Shapiro stressed, like we can't assume that just because someone is Latinx, she also, or he also speaks Spanish, but we have to be really mindful about the work that those parents are kind of asked to do. Yeah, I'm right. I think I think it it puts the focus on on relaxing and shutting the hell up, right? Like <laughs> like we need even more patience in these yeah. places, more energy put towards relationship. And time. What did you think, listeners? How has your immersion experience been? How has it helped the causes of equity? How has it hurt it? Send us your thoughts in a voice memo. Hello at integratedschools.org or join us on social media. We got a great voice memo from Leanne in Sacramento. Let's check that out. Hi, Courtney and Andrew. This is Leanne, a white mom living in Sacramento, California with three white kids under age five. Integrating schools is important to me because of their potential to facilitate educational environments that further our collective liberation. I have a lot of hope in the opportunity integrating schools provide as a radical space for global majority and white children and adults to learn and develop and struggle and fail and achieve and succeed together, all the while building relationships. And it's these relationships and experiences that hold transformative power. Thank you, Leanne, and thank you to everyone who has emailed, rated, and reviewed. We are appreciative of your feedback. It means a lot, and we're grateful to be in this with you all as we try to know better and do better. See you next time.